You're entering Outer Brightness. Welcome back, Fireflies, to this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We have a special guest with us today. Uh, Tarek Lacour is a young Latter-day Saint scholar. He's uh, working on a PhD in philosophy. We're happy to have him on. Uh, I became Facebook friends with him, uh, I think, a few years ago and uh, was really uh, interested to see him as he was. Uh, he and his wife were expecting the birth of their, their daughter, uh, Chloe. He started having and posting conversations with Chloe on Facebook, which I found uh, enlightening and, and funny. And, and I think it's a really, really cool thing that you did, uh, Tarek, because I think it'll be uh, fun for her to look back on. Um, and Tarek and I have had a few uh, conversations by instant messenger uh, because we're both uh, pretty big baseball fans. He's a Yankees fan. I'm a Dodgers fan. We've talked a little bit about that. I've, I've enjoyed getting to know him and just kind of uh, watching his uh, uh, academic career uh, blossom and, and flourish as he's continued his studies. So uh, we have him on to talk a little bit with us about uh, the LDS view of free will, his view of free will, um, libertarianism versus compatibilism. Uh, so he's a he's a philosophy student, so it should be a good conversation. Um, Tarek, welcome to Outer Brightness. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you, Tarek. We're really excited. We've been looking forward to, to talking with you. And uh, we hope that for our listeners too, that you know whether you're LDS or not LDS, that they can profit from this conversation. We're trying to continue having more Latter-day Saint guests on our program um, because we've had several in the past, but we're hoping to have more. So we're hoping that this will be really enlightening for everybody. So uh, let's start off by talking about your childhood, Tariq. Um, so where did you grow up? What was your family life like? You're free to share anything you'd like. I was born in Washington, D.C., but I was raised in Riverside, California, which is the southern part of California. Uh, there's no river in it. I'm still not entirely sure why it's named Riverside. So I'll figure that out one day. It's one of those great philosophical questions. Do we have free will? Why is Riverside named what it is? Um, grew up in a non-denominational Christian family, but I was always philosophically interested in questions like, how do we know God exists? Uh, uh, why, uh, why Christianity rather than, say, Islam or Judaism or Hinduism? Uh, what's the nature of morality? Um, what's the reason to believe that there's life after death? Those types of questions I was asking when I was a very small kid. In fact, I was asking some of them when I was in Sunday school when I was five and six, and I got put on timeout because the teacher couldn't answer, and I was asking these kinds of questions. So I guess I was once a philosopher, always a philosopher. So there was that. Um, I was more or less kind. I was going to church all throughout my uh, youth, but I was probably somewhat of an agnostic, some days leaning towards atheism, uh, from probably age probably 10 to 15 or so. Um, I, I I never fully could get around the concepts of the Trinity or of an immaterial God. So that was, those were big things for me. And although 
I never demurred of Christianity or hated it in like the way, say, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens do. But um, but it was just something I thought deeply about. But I was still thinking about it for years and years. And then I I, I don't know exactly when it happened, but I kept thinking um, this is something that C.S. Lewis talks about. I'm not a fan of C.S. Lewis, but it's kind of a an idea that I'm favorable to is thinking about Jesus, about who he is. Is, is he the son of God? Is he someone who's crazy or is he these other things? And I thought about that for years. And I finally just came to the conclusion that I thought uh, he was the son of God or what he claimed to be. So became more or less a Christian after again after that. Um, my family didn't know how I felt about it. I just kind of kept it to myself because they didn't. I don't think they would have understood. But uh, so I came back to that around age 15, 16 or so. And then, but I still didn't believe in the Trinity. I still didn't believe in the Christian concept of God. So I was kind of wondering where I could fit on this on the spectrum. And then I was reading through my seven encyclopedias and I discovered Mormonism. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And their ideas of a physically embodied God, I thought were very intriguing. So I studied it at that, the church for two and a half years from when I was 15 to when I was 15 and a half to when I was 18, then joined when I was 18. And then I went on a mission when I was 19 to Alabama, then came back. And that was, I was 2000. And so I joined the church in 2009. So I'll be coming up my 12 year anniversary. And then I went to, um, went on a mission to, in 2010, came back in 2012, went to what was then LDS Business College for two years, then went to Utah Valley University university to do my undergraduate in philosophy. And then I decided to do a PhD in philosophy. But my view of philosophy is it needs to be connected to the natural sciences. So I wanted to go somewhere where I could also get a graduate degree in uh, some science. I decided to do neuroscience. So I came to Texas A&M because they allow you to do both. And during that time also, so I lived in Utah for about seven years. I met my wife there. We got married in 2017. As Paul mentioned a little earlier, we had a daughter in 2020 during the midst of the pandemic, which was very interesting because there was a chance I wasn't going to be able to be in the room when my daughter was born. But luckily, I was able to. This was, of course, very early in the pandemic when we were still learning. We we, we basically knew nothing at, at the time my daughter was born. So did that. And uh, now I'm still uh, practicing and believing Latter-day Saint and uh, working um, in philosophy and the philosophy of science, uh, the philosophy of cognitive science and moral psychology. And then my interest in neuroscience or in perception and um, decision making. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of all. And as Paul mentioned, I'm a big sports fan. I'm a Yankees fan, a Lakers fan, a Dallas Cowboys fan and a Texas Longhorns fan. So there you are. Wow, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, there's a lot I wanted to comment about, but I feel like I could spend an hour just asking you about your home life and everything. But I wanted to ask uh, one more question to follow up because uh, because I didn't know you went to UVU originally. Um, so uh, did you ever study under now Kelly Potter, but back then it might have still been Dennis Potter because um, yes. Professor Potter is a Latter-day Saint in the philosophy department. Yes, I took three classes with her. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, did you see the debate with James White, by the way? I think it was on Which Temple's. One? Between Kelly Potter and and James and, White, I don't White. I don't think I no I did I don't recall seeing that. No, actually, if I recall, it actually wasn't on Temples; it was on the Atonement. Uh, yeah, it's been a few years since I've seen it, but okay. Yeah, I just wanted wanted to see if you two intersected while you were there. 
So yes, she was. Uh, she was very influential on my philosophical ideas. We're very. She, uh, we're very different, but she very much steered me in the analytic way of doing philosophy. So. Actually, I also want to mention too. I have a I have a good friend. She's an Anglican, and she's studying the philosophy of science. And it sounds like it's a pretty tough field, you know, in terms of like trying to find experts that really focus in on that. Is is that the, is that what you found to be the case as well, or do focus you find on, a lot of focusing on what? Uh, and like the the philosophy behind you know science or you know the the scientific method, you know, getting more into like you know the foundations of what it means to you know perform science and how that intersects with religion. Um, is that kind of what you do, or is that not really related? Um, I guess it's tangentially related. There are certainly debates in philosophy of science about how philosophy of science should proceed. Can philosophy of science does it need to be connected to scientific practice, or can it be at arm's length? I'm in the company of believing it needs to be connected to scientific practice. So, awesome. But yes, there there are certainly, um, and of course, there are some. And how people view philosophy of science within the philosophical community, of course, ranges. Some people think, like W.V. Quine, that philosophy of science is the only philosophy worth doing. I tend to uh, agree more with that. But more, most people just think of philosophy as, of science as kind of a branch along with logic and metaphysics and other questions. So, hmm. so it's, a, it's, it's a field unto itself, but it's got lots and lots of different ways of doing it. Awesome. Great. Thank you for your insights. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So what what was it that initially sparked your interest in studying philosophy? I think I was sitting in, no, I was standing in my mother's bedroom. I was about eight or nine. And I was wondering, how do I know that what I'm seeing is actually there and I'm not hallucinating? And how, and how do I know that the world outside of my mind exists? How do I know I'm not these are kind of the questions that Descartes asked at the beginning of the first meditations. Of course, I do nothing about Descartes at the time. And then I just kept asking those kinds of questions, questions about free will, which we'll talk about later, personal identity, um, how we know what we know, what's the best avenue to truth, what does truth mean? So those were all questions I was asking as uh, a kid. And then I actually didn't know philosophy. I, I knew what philosophy was by the time I went on my mission. I didn't know it was its own department within the university that people got paid for those things. Because I started thinking I wanted to do uh, maybe biblical studies after I got out of off of my mission. My mission president is a New Testament scholar. So I thought about that for a while. And then he mentioned to me, you know, the he would listen to me said, I think what you should probably do is philosophy. That's more where your head is. And so that was that. So I came back and haven't looked back. All right. What, uh, what are the philosophical questions that, that kind of drive your, your studies and your research? What, what are the, the things that really get your mind turning that you want to want to try to contribute to the field? Well, I mentioned free will, how, how do, if we are, the kind of organisms that the sciences describe. How do we have choices? How are we morally responsible? So that connects with moral psychology and with uh, philosophy of science. Also, what is the science? What is science showing us about the world? Is the world very reductionistic, or is it a bit broader than what we might conceive? There. Uh, what's the nature of consciousness? Uh, the nature of perception. Those are the kind of questions I'm very interested in. And they're all interconnected, as you could kind of see. Um, You know, there's five branches of philosophy with epistemology, metaphysics, logic, um, aesthetics, and moral philosophy or ethics. And most of my questions are more 
closely related to epistemology. So, right. So how do we know what we know? Yes. Very good. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so in terms of, let's, let's talk now about uh, the questions we kind of talked about beforehand. So let's dive mm-hmm. right, into, right, right into it. And you'll find very quickly that Paul and I are not philosophers. So uh, feel free to uh, dumb it down for us. <laughs> don't feel, you know, don't, don't feel afraid to, to act like we, you know, like, uh, like you're talking down to us. So, so please, you know, explain it as, as, as you would like to explain it. I, I teach, as I mentioned, uh, I teach engineering ethics and engineers have never taken philosophy classes before. So I'm used to talking at a basic level. So I'll keep it there. Okay, great. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're listening to Outer Brightness a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be. And the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. The Faith After Mormonism Conference is an annual conference that provides encouragement and insight for people leaving Mormonism to explore a new faith home in historic biblical Christianity. Through speakers, workshops, exhibitors, and individual interactions, you will receive helpful resources and meet others on a similar journey. This year, the featured guests are going to be the folks from Adams Road Ministry. Adams Road is a Christian nonprofit ministry dedicated to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ through song and testimony. Its members are former Mormons who have been brought into a saving relationship with Jesus through the grace of God. This year, there will be two events. The North event will be held at Alpine Church in Layton, Utah on September 10th and 11th, and the South event will be held September 24th and 25th at Center Point Church in Orem, Utah. For those of you who are in Utah, I encourage you to make a trip either to Layton or Orem to these events. I think you'll be greatly blessed by them, and I just wanted to share that information with you. Uh, so in terms of LDS philosophy, uh, how does the LDS view of the eternal nature of intelligences, spirit intelligences, tie into your view of our moral agency? So do you think, do you think that this requires holding to libertarian free will, or do you think compatibilism could be a possible view held by LDS? Okay, let's uh, back up a little bit about what we talk about, the nature of intelligences or intelligence. So that's not a view, that, as you kind of know, and let's say in Christian theology, there's kind of the fa- the fundamental things that people will agree on, that Jesus is the Son of God, the, the atonement, and things like that. But of course, within Christianity, there are differences of opinion about, say, how the atonement works with Calvin having one view, Aquinas having another, Abelard having another, and so forth. So on the idea of intelligences, there are different views. One would be that intelligence is what you would almost think of as scientific law, so that there's, you know, uniform, uniformity in nature that it works according to laws that operate 
um, independent of God having created them. That would be one view. That's similar to what Brigham Young kind of thought. Um, and then there's another view which views intelligence as, as almost like people, but an embryo. So not fully what we are now, but somehow conscious beings of some sort. And they're called intelligences. They're kind of proto-humans. Excuse me. Um, so depending on how you think about that, that will influence how you think of freedom of the will. Um, Blake Osler takes more of the latter view that intelligences are uncreated so that humans essentially, like God, have the idea, have the um, attribute of the satiety, meaning self-existence, not being created from anything else than being somewhat necessary. Um, my own view is I don't think that's the case. I think that um, matter and uh, space and those types of things are necessary, but people are not, and that they're more emergent, as it were. So on that view, since um, we come to be through those types of forces, I don't see anything wrong with being a compatibilist. That is, and we should probably, for the listeners, give a little intro to what that is. So within the realm of free will, there are basically four views you can hold, and there are variations on each of them. But one would be hard determinism, and determinism is the view that given the past, the future can only unfold one way. So because of, because, and if determinism is true, then you don't have free will. Everything that happened before necessitates what happens next. So it's like um, it's like a domino. Once the first domino goes, they're all going down and there's nothing you can do about it. So that's, that's hard determinism, sometimes just called determinism. Um, on the other side is libertarianism, which has nothing to do with the political philosophy. Um, although you obviously can be a libertarian about free will and a libertarian politically, but it's not necessary. And that's the view that causal determinism, which I just talked about, is false, but we have free will. So that's what I would say is the most commonly accepted view among Latter-day Saints, whether they are people in the pews or among scholars. Most are libertarians about free will. Um, how, how that all works, everyone is a little different, but the, the, the main point is that they think determinism is false and that we have free will. Um, the other type of skeptic about free will is called a hard incompatibilist. And these people will say, it doesn't matter whether determinism is true or false, either way, we lack free will. So people like Galen Strawson would be a person who is a hard incompatibilist. And then the most numerous group are called compatibilists, and they believe that determinism and free will can coexist at the same time. Now, some compatibilists are determinists, so they accept that free will exists, uh, and they also think determinism is true, and these are called soft determinists as comp com compared to the hard determinists. And then there are others who are a little more noncommittal about whether determinism is true, but they still believe in free will, and they will say, well, whether it's true or false, we'll still have free will. So those are um, those are kind of the that's the landscape of free will. Uh, I'm a soft determinist because I believe determinism is true and we have free will. Great, thank you for explaining that. Yeah, we we kind of crafted this question because there are some Latter Day Saints that we interact with in discussion groups, and mm -hmm. they will tie the fact that um, Protestants or Evangelicals believe in creatio ex nihilo, so creation from nothing. For those who are listening and don't know. And we made a program on that, so go check that out if you want to. That's also that. true. Of, that's also true of Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians as well. Right. Exactly. So yes. That's not a. That's not a Protestant. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I mentioned that just because this particular discussion group is mostly just Protestants and Latter Day Saints. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out. But so they would tie this idea that since 
uh, we believe that God created everything from nothing, that the only choice for, for free will is hard determinism. And so we try to explain compatibilism, and sometimes they disagree that it's a possibility. So it's interesting that you admitted that you as Latter-day Saint are a soft compatibilist, right? So Soft determinist or just a compatibilist. Okay. Soft determinist, right. Yeah. And I think most Calvinists would probably be in the soft uh, determinist category. Um, right. Once you start getting into the hard determinist category, that's more hyper-Calvinism, I think. Um, uh, L- Lutherans, I believe. Uh, Luther was a hard determinist, I believe. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I don't. I'm not. A, I'm not a Luther scholar. And even even Luther Luther scholars admit there's a lot to know about Luther. <laughs> he had a long life and a lot of a lot of well, sermons. Um, yeah, I I think it would be safe to say that most Christians of the Orthodox Catholic um, Protestant persuasion will accept some version of free will. Um, certainly, uh, I I would say. It's probably true that in the Catholic tradition, compatibilism is more common than in Protestant traditions, I think. So thinkers like Augustine, Aquinas, Occam are all soft determinists. Um, and then libertarians, um, I, I, among, and certainly among philosophers, are more in the, uh, libertari- are more in the Protestant traditions, I've noticed. Mm. I, don't, I don't know why that is. Um, it may be because... Uh, the Catholic Church, which is very uh, Aristotelian, and Aristotle was a compatibilist, and I, he influences Aquinas, and Aquinas one of the great doctors of the Church. So it's not surprising in a way. Um, but then, uh, but in, but even in the Catholic Church, you have Molina, who is a great libertarian. So it, it, it's the point. The point is, I would say, and we'll get more into this. I think mo- about ninety-five percent of Christians are going to believe in some version of free will. And for probably the same reason that it seems that moral responsibility is a prerequisite of being a Christian. There has to be some notion of that, and that requires some view of free, of having free will. Now, what kind you will come out to will differ, but. Yeah, great. Thank you. Lots of great points. Yeah, and these are these are all very interesting questions. And, and for the sake of our discussion, I think we're all kind of coming at the question from the point of view of, of theists, right? Um, but there are also atheist philosophers who may hold to, you know, various views of, of free will or determinism. Um, mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like how, how would a materialist view these things where, where the God question really isn't part of the discussion? Well, I am a materialist. So I, um, I, th- I, I don't know that materialism always necessarily matters to that question, but as far as atheists, there are just like within Christianity, there are those who are Hard, they're, they're all along the spectrum. I would say most atheists, though, do accept some version of free will. Um, Galen Strawson is an atheist, but and he's an incompatibilist. But people like Daniel Dennett, who's one of my favorite philosophers and is a well-known atheist, he's a compatibilist. Um, Roderick Chisholm, who is is deceased now, he was a libertarian, one of the more outspoken ones. Let's see who else is out there. Um, Robert, I, I, no, 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 I'm sorry, Kane's a Christian. Um, my mistake. Uh, so there, there are a lot of uh, different views out there, but I would say most are, will ag- agree with free will. Um, uh, free will skepticism is pretty is more the minority. There's there's less there's less there are fewer skeptics than there are. I, I think if it would be percentages, the highest percentage would be compatibilists, then libertarians, then um, skeptics would be after that, and skeptics would be either hard and compatibilists or determinists. Uh-huh. So but, uh, they they would. Uh, but um, to, to answer your question, 
some would view free will as, well, as long as there's no gun to my head and I'm the one making the decision, then I'm free. That would be a soft determinist. So people like A.J. Ayer and uh, J.L. Mackey, who are two prominent atheist philosophers, that would be their view of free will. Um, Matthew, you're an engineer, so you know that there's multiple kind of degrees that machines can have of freedom um, or autonomy. And that's how Daniel Dennett views free will. He thinks that we have certain levels of freedom that apart that come together once we're whole organisms. So that's how he would view free will. And there's other views in between. But I don't know, but I, I don't think the the atheism doesn't imply that there's no free will. It would just be, it would just at most would be, well, if you have free will, it's not because God gave it to you. That would be the only thing they couldn't accept. They would have to just come at it some other way. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think I was trying to maybe get at the distinction of like, um, so as, as you were saying, like where, where determinism, what determinism is, is like, you know, once, once the ball is set in motion, then everything else that follows uh, is a result of that initial kick of the ball or, or what have you. Right. And mm-hmm. and so I think some, at least from my reading, some people, uh, some philosophers who are atheists and, and, and materialists tend to view um, that determinism as, as uh, I guess, rooted in, in our bodily nature. Right. So um, something bad happens to you as a child, um, then certain things are going to happen or going to follow, follow from that um, because of your, your makeup, right? What, what happened to you as a child? So how does that play into your studies as a neuroscientist? Well, the neuroscience of free will is a very, um, interesting field. Um, I would say that neuroscience, uh, uh, I should, we should go back a little bit historically. So most determinists, let's say in the 18th, 19th century, were taking their view of determinism due to physics, with Newtonian physics being deterministic. So they accepted that. That's where they got their determinism from. Now, quantum mechanics can be either indeterministic or deterministic, and we're not sure which one. So that's still an open question. Uh, Sciences like neuroscience and chemistry do tend to be deterministic, although there are some neuroscientists who are libertarians, but they're very few and far between. So yes, but you're right. There's a we do um, we do see um, kind of a causal antecedent, and we're able to. And this is a big thing in Bayesian um, neuroeconomics, where we can kind of understand if we understand like what's predeceases um, what precedes a person's decision, we can with very high accuracy predict what they're going to do, which tends to make sense if determinism is true. It'd be very odd if liberty if if there was no real connection between what happened in the past and what happens next. It would seem it would seem odd that. Um, you'd be able to predict that so accurately. So then the question becomes, okay, so what's what's the more plausible explanation that we're just getting really, really lucky or that there's a causal connection to this? And I would say it's the latter rather than the former. And it seems like science in general is reliant upon this idea that there is a, a chain of events. There, there's a cause and an effect, right? If, if you disconnect any kind of cause from effect, you really couldn't use the scientific method or, or could you? Well, I, I don't mean to say that libertarians reject cause and effect. Oh, it's I just okay. that they would they would see they would see their free will as being somewhat unconnected from the types of things that science studies. So hmm. a lot of libertarians, such as Richard Swinburne, who's one of the great libertarians today and a hero of mine, he's a substance dualist. So he thinks there's a soul and then there's the material world, and the soul is free and has libertarian free will where 
determinism rules within the physical world. So Swinburne would say, well, it's perfectly fine for science to talk about those types of things. But when it comes to persons, persons are different. They're not just material beings. Uh, so that would be that would be his way of being around it. Uh, other people who are libertarians, but they are but they are materialists. I'm thinking here, Peter Van Inwagen. They will say, well, yes, it, but free will is just a mystery. We just can't understand it. It's like we know we have it. We'll never explain it. It's not unlike what is talked about. What's known as um, kind of um, a pessimism about the hard problem of consciousness. They'll say, well, consciousness exists, but we'll never explain it. These are called. Um, no, no, they're not. They're not illusionists. Illusionists is something different. But they're 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 just they're just skeptical. We'll ever solve the problem, and that's it's similar to that. Some people's view of free will. We know we have it. Why we have it? How it works? We'll uh, we won't know. I do that a lot as Christians too. A lot of times we appeal to mystery or some things we just won't. Mysterians. That's what they're called. Mysterians. So a person and the hard problem of, of consciousness. Let's say consciousness exists. We can't explain it. And that's similar to some people about free will. We have it. We'll never explain why. Hmm. So, But we'll keep trying. That's not to say they don't want to shut down debate. They'll just say, we probably won't get an answer. It's probably too hard for us to figure out. Makes sense. Yeah. So, I'm- Which is fine. Which is fine. I mean, there are so many questions in science. And we know, I think lots of working scientists, even the ones who are very confident in science, and I am too, will admit that there's just a lot we're never going to fully understand. We just don't have the ingenuity, the money, the time to answer all the questions. That doesn't mean that science can't answer them in principle. It's just that we're limited creatures. So there's just going to be a lot that's left unanswered and free will maybe one of the mysteries that never is conquered. So I want to follow up a little bit on on where Matthew was going with this question. We, we we often interact with Latter-day Saints who will say, you know, if, if if God creates ex nihilo, then God is responsible for all of the evil that occurs in the world and, and that uh, humans carry out. Um, and they, you know, they'll take the view that uh, because Joseph Smith taught that uh, there's no such thing as immaterial matter and intelligence is, is uh, a spirit essence, right? Um, and the spirit is matter, just more refined. Um, so they'll take that view that because humans have aseity, uh, as, as you kind of alluded to, Blake Osler taking that position, but you don't. Um, and so they'll say, you know, humans have aseity and therefore, you know, God cannot be held responsible for any evil that we we commit. Um, what what is your what is your view of that since you kind of reject that idea that humans have aseity? Okay, let me make sure I understand the question. Sure. You you started off by saying that many people say the Latter-day Saints within your chat group have said because God creates ex nihilo, therefore God's responsible for the evil that humans do. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, well, first I would say I don't think that's true. Um you um God is not caught God's not responsible for God would only be responsible for the evil that humans do if God, if God fully controls what humans do. I don't think that follows from ex nihilo. You can create something that has agency and can act for itself, so God wouldn't be responsible for that. I don't think that follows from ex nihilo creation. Um, and what was the second question you asked? What what um, so you you said that you don't accept uh, the idea that humans have a satiety, uh, even though that's kind of a, a generally accepted LDS view, even if they wouldn't use the word aseity. Um So what what are your thoughts on that? How does that how does your your thinking on that fit within your 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 broader LDS framework? Um, it just uh, I don't I'm think not- it really. I don't think it really affects a whole lot, except that uh, 
you're just a contingent being like everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess, um, hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't think it, and I'm not really trying to put that. you on the spot. I'm just, I'm oh, just no, curious no, no, about I your thinking. No, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think anything. I, I mean, this would be a view, I guess I share with, uh, both of you as you believe that men, uh, mankind, that would mean men and women and, um, uh, non-binary as well, that they are contingent beings. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So I would agree with that. I would just say that God is also a contingent being in some sense. Hmm. But um, so I, I guess I would say that there aren't any there aren't any necessary beings. There's just a lot of contingent beings there for some reason. Okay. So or perhaps no reason. It's just <laughs> ultimately my view of the universe is that it's just it's just there and that's all. It doesn't okay. have an explanation of why. Okay. So it sounds like if I'm understanding you correctly, um, that you would take the, like the infinite regression of, of God's model within an LDS yeah. framework. Okay. Uh, yes. Th- there, and that goes back to, there are multiple views on that too. Um, one can, what's known as the King Follett sermon where Joseph Smith talks about God was once a man as we are now. There are different ways of taking that. Blake Osler takes the view that God has always been God, but in order to gain certain understanding of what it means to be human he took upon himself a body much in the way that jesus christ does or did and then he learned through his experience and then and is now essentially embodied um so that so that would be why the father has a body the son has a body and the holy ghost doesn't yet um or you could take the view of eternal regression which is there's (laughs) one not regression maybe that's the wrong um but infinite regress view which is there's just an infinite cycle of men becoming gods and kind of having no beginning and no end. So that would also kind of require, I think this would, that, that view makes sense. If you think that the past, present and future are all equally real, like the B theory of time says. So it would, it it would be, it is very different in that sense. So um, yeah. So I, I do take the infinite regress view. Okay. So do you, in general, though, do you think that um, the Odyssey is more easily resolved on, on an LDS view that that's kind of where, you know, our Latter-day Saint interlocutors tend to tend to go is that they think the Odyssey is more, more readily solvable on an LDS view because of um, the co-eternal nature of, of intelligences with God. By the Odyssey, I take it, you mean, why does God allow evil and suffering to happen? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so the reason I want to clear that up is people often use the word theodicy to refer to both the problem of evil and why God allows it. And those are two separate questions. So just wanted to make that distinction. Um, I would say that there are Latter-day Saint views that can, that are interesting, that give interesting, uh, the- that account for interesting theodicies, but it would still be, it, it will still be a problem regardless of whether you are a Latter-day Saint, uh, if you are a Christian who's a Latter-day Saint or a not or a non-Latter-day Saint Christian, because you'll always, because at, at some level, I think Blake Osler is right on in his new book at the beginning when he says, we really don't know why God allows these types of things to happen. So it will always be somewhat of a mystery and you'll probably, and theodicies, I give, think, give part of the answer, such as the free will defense if you're a libertarian. God can't create free creatures and then ensure that they do what he wants all the time, because part of the 
being free means I can do otherwise, I can do what I want, which means I can tell God, I don't want to do what you're asking, and I want to cause harm and suffering, and God has to give me that ability. And then certain people will say, well, is that is it really, is all the pain and suffering really worth the trade-off of your freedom? Michael Roos is very skeptical of that view. But that's a very prominent uh, defense um, though that's not distinct, distinctly a theodicy, because it's not saying it's it's kind of showing that this problem isn't as much of a problem as you might think. This is Alvin Plantinga's view, who's reformed, Matthew, like you. So shout out to the reformers. Um, and uh, so were you asking what my own view of theodicy was or just just is it easier to resolve on a Latter-day Saint view versus on a um, non-Latter-day Saint Christian? Latter. I, now I forgot which order I said it. So you just wanted to know. <laughs> no, I just want whether you thought it was more. I don't. I don't. I don't think that the problem of evil is any more easily solved by Latter Day Saints than it is by uh, other types of Christians. It will. It, it seems it will be a problem for anyone unless they um, just say that there's no such thing as evil and that things just happen and then there's no problem. But that's not where most Christians are going to go. So. So you said uh, you said earlier that why does God allow evil is a separate question from where did evil come from? Is that right? Um, the problem of evil is taken to show that if evil exists, then God does not exist. But then there's the other question of, OK, even if God exists, if God's good, why does he allow these things to happen? There must be some reason why God allows it to happen. Hmm. Some people say, well, yes, there is a reason. We don't know. But a person who's giving a theodicy is saying, this is why God allows evil to happen. So they're taking a stronger view than, say, Planago does when he says, well, it's not contradictory to say that evil and God exists and a good God exists. Now, why God allows evil to happen is another question. I don't know what the answer is, but the problem of evil doesn't refute that God exists. So hmm. that's the difference. And of course, there's different versions of the problem of evil. There's the logical version that says there's a logical contradiction in having a good God and and evil in the world. So if evil exists, then God doesn't exist. And people will say, well, it's more obvious that evil exists, therefore God doesn't exist, if they take the logical version to be the case. Now, Alvin Plantinga's free will defense gave a pretty big body blow to the logical version of the problem of evil. So most people don't use that anymore. There have been some renewed arguments, uh, better logical arguments uh, against uh, for the problem of evil. People like J. Howard Sobel in his book, uh, Logic and Theism, he gives a new version of that argument that Mackey once advanced back in the 19, I think, 70s and 80s. But most people would reject it now. Um, what's more common now is what's called the evidentialist or the prob prob probabilistic version of the problem of evil. It says there's no logical contradiction in God existing and evil existing, but it's highly unlikely that a good God exists given that evil exists. And then there are different ways of going about that. Some people give um, what's called, like John Hick would give what's called the soul building theodicy, which is in order to become the person God wants you to be, you have to go through this tremendous amount of suffering. And then people will object to that by saying things like, well, maybe that makes sense for adults who live a long time, but what about all of the kids who die in infancy? They don't really learn anything from it because they weren't alive long enough to learn. So there are different kind of views on that, but they're distinct issues. And I just wanted to make sure that the listeners understood that. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And, and I was going to bring up the fact that putting myself in my shoes when I was a Latter-day Saint, I would have 
kind of given the same the same idea that you just uh, elucidated that the idea that suffering exists or evil exists because it's part of you know the plan of redemption eternal progression and I would probably have appealed to the Book of Mormon which says there must needs be opposition in all things. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard that kind of defense from fellow Latter Day Saints or how would you how would you address that? Um, that's Lehi's version of kind of a, he's not giving either a theodicy, he's giving more of an explanation of why the atonement is necessary. He's talking more about the fall than evil per se, I would point out there. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've heard that a few times. I don't think it's true that evil has to exist for good to exist. It seems that one can exist without the other. Mm. Um, for example, there's, it seems that God by himself being perfectly good can exist with no evil. So the, the two can be separate. I don't think one is dependent upon the other. And of course, even Latter-day Saints believe in heaven, there will only be good and there will be no evil. So they don't both have to exist at the same time. So yeah. I think Lehi, I think Lehi is trying to give a is trying to give a story to his son and explain some very tough things, but he's not doing technical philosophy. So he's I I, I, w- I think there's some things there that are not correct. Although I, I agree with the overall arc of what he's saying. Okay. Yeah, great. Thank you for addressing that. That's kind of the one text I wanted to bring up with you because I know that's that's one that I commonly referred to, you know, when I was LDS in terms of like, why did evil exist? And I would kind of point to that. Mm-hmm. Um, we thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to Outer Brightness wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're benefiting from our content, please write a review to help us spread the word. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. Music for Outer Brightness is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and Adams Road. You can learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. that Jesus shed But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless Compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where He bore sin And now I have the righteousness that is my faith in Jesus' stood opposed and nailed it there for me and through the
cross He put to death hostility And in his body reconciled Us to God and brought us peace And I am crucified with Christ And I no longer of the cross Some demand a sign and some seek to be wise But we preach Christ crucified A stumbling block for some The foolishness of God But a wiser than the wisest man The power of the cross May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Through which the world has been crucified to me And I to the world So I take up my cross And follow where Jesus leads Oh, I consider of the cross